Welcome to Christian Curious with Dr. Haley Scott of Denver Seminary. What are the challenges we face in today's church and culture in a postmodern, post-Christian era? Dr. Haley believes that in addressing those issues, the church must adopt a missional mindset. Christianity does hold the answers to the big questions of today's culture. Let's join Dr. Haley for today's edition of Christian Curious. Do you find joy and peace in knowing God? If not, do you remember a time that you did? This is Christian Curious with Dr. Haley, where we tackle some of the most thorniest and difficult questions regarding the Christian faith in the 21st century. One of the things we talk a lot about on this show is how the church will reach the next generation. Author and scholar Dr. Kenda Creasy-Dean, in her book, Almost Christian, What the Faith of Our Teenagers is Telling the American Church, makes the point that one of our biggest evangelical tools is our own lives. She writes, the issue is not whether our young people can read the Bible, they can. The real issue is, well, really, why would they want to? What have they seen in the church that would suggest that the Bible is a source of power and wonder? When have they seen their parents derive life and joy from reading scripture? Those are such powerful uh, reflection questions and pointers to guiding us to think about how we are witnessing with our own lives. Today, Dr. Dean is here with us to discuss what she's learned through the Zoe Project, a ministry initiative through Princeton University that sought to understand how churches can build bridges to the next generation. Dr. Dean is an ordained United Methodist pastor in New Jersey and a professor of youth, church, and culture at Princeton Theological Seminary. In addition to teaching in the practical theology, education, and formation, Dean works closely with Princeton's Institute for Youth Ministry and the Farm Farminary. Dean is the author of numerous books on youth, culture, and church, including Almost Christian, What the Faith of Our Teenagers is Telling the American Church, and Practicing Passion, Youth in the Quest for a Passionate Church. Welcome to Christian Curious, Dr. Dean. It's great to be here. Thanks. First, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about um, the Zoe Project, which just wrapped up this year. You had a diverse array of faith communities across the across the nearby Princeton area. Is that right? Right. Yeah, we had twelve churches. Um, these we were one of, um, as you know, many um, innovation hubs that the Lillian Endowment was um, sponsoring the last few years, and our churches were all within 100 miles of Princeton um, so that they could gather easily. And they were, they, they were, you made an intentional effort to be sure uh, that yeah. they were diverse, correct? They were all over the map, yes, in every possible way. We had a mega church of 10,000 people. We had a house church uh, that meets in a living room. We had um, a, a range of uh theological traditions, and um, lots and lots of people who um, often are not represented in these studies. We were pretty intentional about trying to get, um, uh, you know, new church communities involved. So we had about um, 60% were non-white or immigrant churches. Um, the rest were um, kind of traditional suburban churches. So all across the board. That's that's a really good all sampling sign. Um, it's fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> so in your in your book, Almost Christian, you really expounded on the research that uh, younger 
generations are less likely to go to church, to believe in God. What do you think are the top reasons for this? Yeah, well, those, those statistics, as you know, are a little suspect because they're self-reports, number one. And number two, um, they, while they're borne out by more recent studies, um, the uh, self-reporting actually of young people is not all that different from their parents or older um, adults. But um, so when you look at it from the outside, it looks a little different from what it looks like on the inside, I guess. But I think the big, there's one overriding issue on why young people are not finding um, church as a primary gathering place, and that is that it just doesn't matter. It's not a significant source mm-hmm. of community purpose belonging. Um, any of the things that they are really um, longing for. I, I think that might be true for adults as well, um, but it's um, unvarnished in the young adult community. And they're like, yeah, it doesn't matter. If it matters to you, good. Go, you do you. But it doesn't really matter to me, so I'm out. So unpack for us a little bit about why you think that the statistics are a little suspect regarding self-reporting. Do you think, how do you think those numbers ought to be different? Well, I think, first of all, there's some data out there that suggests that most of us overestimate our um, our positive behaviors when we self-report. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. And so if you ask, um, if you look at the statistics of how many, how often people are in church generally, and then if you ask pastors, they're like, I don't know where those people are because I don't see them that often. Um, but um, the other thing is that, you know, young people kind of, they self-report slightly more um, attendance than their parents do. It's a a slight variation of that. Um, But what is, what the dynamic that they, the statistics do bear out is what is growing is the number of people who disaffiliate, Mm -hmm. right? So the people who are, who once had a connection and no longer have a connection or who just never have had a connection, those numbers have grown exponentially exponentially um so yes there is a way to look to interpret it that says yes they are um attending less than others but the truth is it it was a small percentage to begin with and that small percentage has gotten exponentially larger that's the dynamic that people talk about i see yeah um i would imagine that you know that the young that i do know that the controversial statement is that whenever psychologists and psychiatrists have studied Um, self-reports among Christians versus non-Christians. Christians Christians tend to be high. They tend to answer aspirationally, like how they hope to be, how they want to be rather than how they actually are. And that's often scored as deceptive behavior, but it's not a better way of saying that is they describe themselves aspirationally rather than realistically. I really like that. That's really that's a good way to say it. I think basically today, compared to probably 25 or 30 years ago anyway, um, regular church attendance, like your high attenders, is about twice a month. Um, yeah. It used to be if you're there every week. Um, that's very rare. Um, your regulars are there about half the time. That That's pretty standard of what what I have been hearing here in the Denver metro area, and we've always attributed it just for the fact that we are – an outdoor um, environment where on the weekends people especially young adults who work multiple jobs to live here they want to be on a wilderness trail where they often feel like they've sensed the presence of god more than within the actual church building itself 
Yeah, I think there's a lot to that. I think it's not just in Denver, right? I think that's kind of, uh, well, one of the things that we found uh, in working with the Zoe Project is that what you just described would be true in many, many places. But I also think it matters that they do not sense much of a difference in their lives when they do go. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if they have, if they are already connected to a community, it matters, you know, in the church, then they, they feel um, that is a win. If when they um, go, they have a transcendent sense of the holy in some way, that's a win. That's, that's fairly unusual, actually. But, um, but most of the ways that we think about things that we do are because they matter in some way to our, to the way we experience life. And church just registers as flat on that um, for most young adults. So it's not a compelling um, reason to gather unless there has been a way, an intentional way of shaping a community. One of our churches, as I mentioned, was a house church, right? So this is, this is formed out of people who are, a lot of them are college students. They are explicit about understanding their lives in a spiritual way and wanting to deepen that. Um, about They're explicit about wanting to make a positive difference in their neighborhood, which is very evident in the, in the way that church operates. But it's a tiny little group of people. Mm-hmm. And um, but they are pretty, it's clear that that church makes a difference for those people. And so that has the effect of drawing them back. So you mentioned a couple, mentioned two things uh, specifically that that young adults are not finding in church, and that is the the uh, deep relational community and also the relevance to life. What would have you found anything in your research, or do you have any theories about why churches are not the type of places where young adults are finding these things? Yeah, I would add one more thing to that, too. I don't think that they're experiencing a lot of um, encounters with the holy there either. So there's nothing existentially different about their experiences um, of worship or whatever. One of the things that we do know from from other research is that, you know, when people experience something that they are willing to attribute to God, right, some transcendent experience, something they can't quite put their finger on, but that feels like something in them existentially shifts that feels like it did not come from within them. It feels like it came from without. So they tend to call that, that must have been a God thing, right? Mm-hmm. That is one of the biggest contributors to durable faith when that happens. Um, and it often happens during worship for people who, who experience that. Where it does not happen, it's just, it, it, it's not necessarily a negative. There's lots of human community things that people value, but it's not a reason people will come back. So, why are churches not providing those things? I think some of it is that churches generally are um, kind of hands-off when it comes to young adults. Mm-hmm. Uh, typically, they're, they lament that young adults aren't there, but they are slow to create space for young adults to contribute. Right. Um, and I think there's, there are lots of reasons for that. Some of it's that people actively devalue them, but I think more often it's that they don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. They feel very helpless with that age group, and they feel somewhat um, sad that they don't matter more to them. They want to matter. They don't know how, and they don't know why. 
And so it's kind of like, well, we don't want to offend them. So, you know, when they're ready, I guess they'll come back. Now, the data is that they don't, but we, we tell ourselves that they'll come back when they have children. Um, and they but, don't. I just recently interviewed um, yeah. Joni and Tom Schultz with group publishing, yeah. and yeah. they said the most disturbing trend that they've seen is the the uh, enormous drop in attendance among people who are taking their kids to VBS. Interesting. Interesting. So they're not so, bringing back their VBS. kids. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I think that that's, I think that's where we're headed. Um, so I'm not surprised that that's a trend that they are seeing. They track this more carefully than I do, but I believe them. You know, there's been a lot of talk about um, third spaces and I know that here in the Denver metro area before COVID was were pubs and <laughs> places yeah. like that. In fact, I took yeah. one of our, our our gathering of churches, the very first innovation hub, I took them on a tour of a pub, um, a yeah. brewery, in fact, and they went through yeah. this brewery and I had the the bartender actually teach them about why people are coming to this this brewery so much and it had to do with community it had to do with everyone on staff being all the way down to the chef who will never see a customer being trained in hospitality to yeah right to think about the customer always and um so that was the very first time the very first um innovation hub that i when i gathered my group of churches together we went to the we went to the pub together it was a lot of fun taking 40 yeah. pastors yeah. to to a pub <laughs> but um but that is an yeah. example of a th of what is being called a third space and right this these third spaces are places where people are finding those you know maybe not the 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 connection with the holy but um they're definitely finding community and they're finding right. some sort of meaning maybe through those relationships. Um, so I'm interested on what what maybe you have seen regarding third spaces in your area, um, in the greater Northeast, you're in the Princeton area. Where are the third spaces that young adults are drawn to? Well, we did the same thing that you did. We The first thing we did was we, our hunch that we kind of guided the project on, the Zoe project on, was that God is active in the world outside of the church walls as well as inside the church walls. And we could probably learn some things if we found, you know, places that had God's fingerprints on them, even if they were not acknowledged as divine fingerprints, yes. right? Mm -hmm. um, people with um, catechized imaginations see things in interpret things differently than people without. So we also, we took them to 35 or 40 different places where young adults were hanging out and, um, we um, we wound up this kind of grouping those kinds of spaces. They weren't exactly space. Well, they were spaces more than places, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. We called them domains, and um, so we had so for for example, one was the domain of uh, sustainable agriculture. Lots of young adults were finding meaning, purpose, and community in spaces around sustainable agriculture, community gardens, um, you know, wolfing, lots of things that have to do with um, organic farming, that kind of stuff. So that was a, 
face that was very attractive to young adults. It, it appealed to the authenticity that they have. It appealed to it appealed to their foodie interests, which are mm-hmm. um, the well documented um, interests. And um, young adults easily gathered in those spaces. Now, a few churches are have you know joined into that domain. Um, they provide community gardens or whatever, but on balance, not very many. And so our hunch was that, look, if churches actually found ways to participate in the spaces where young adults already are, rather than trying to always convince young adults to come to us and come to our space, and sometimes it might even be physically in the same spot. You could have a community garden on your church property, for example, right? Mm -hmm. But the point is you're gathering not around a young adult program. You're gathering around um, an exercise in feeding your community. And um, our hunch was if we could get churches to go where young adults already instinctively were being drawn, and we're willing to say that even though they don't necessarily acknowledge that as a spiritual impulse, as Christians, we would call that a spiritual impulse, right? right. They, they don't know necessarily, or they wouldn't call, use the same language we would. But we look at that and we're like, you know what? When we see you participating in the healing of your community like that, we see God in you. And that's really what the church brings to that conversation. Um, You don't have to see God in you, but we do. And so we think that means we're called to help you. And so how can we do that? So anyway, we we, sustainable agriculture, um, health and wellness was one. Um, Soul cycle, if you know anything about soul cycle, was one of our stops. I've heard about that. You know, I mean, it's it's like, yeah, it's almost a religious community. And... um, CrossFit, some of those. Um, what were some others? Um, uh, political activism um, mm-hmm. was one. Um, you know, so there were various um, spaces like that. They weren't necessarily third places because absolutely pubs and restaurants and, you know, I don't know what pandemic's going to do to that now, but right. the primary places that young people gather as places are really in jeopardy at the moment. Um, we're close to New York, so that is a defining feature of young adult life in New York, and it's it's shut down. So young adults are leaving. I can imagine the hole is just a gaping wound where with with those places. Yes, yeah. Um, Food and gathering around food is such a big one, and of course for churches that's a sacramental um, part of our identity. So that's a natural place for us to gather as well. But our biggest, our biggest discovery, I think, was that in most of these, quote, third spaces um, rather than places, um, which are neither home. So a, so a third space, right, is not, not home and it's not work. It's someplace in between. Um, they are being inhabited by young adults, not so much by churches. Yeah. And churches might want to get with the program. These churches that are, you know, that have come alongside young adults, it it reminds me of when I uh, lived in Michigan. I decided for some reason to go see if I could find hope in Detroit. And and at that time, you know, Detroit, you know, Detroit's now rebounding a little bit. But at that time, Detroit was still mired in unemployment and devastation. And I went to the city and I walked through the gutted out buildings, the vandalized buildings. And then I, um, spent some, spent half of the day with a, 
a woman who runs a ministry there that um, that is an urban garden. And not only does she, right. she employs young adults from her uh, neighborhood to come in and tend the garden, but every time a house is raised to the ground because of abandonment, they will go and they'll plant a garden in that space. Wow. Because they have wow. found that if you leave a lot empty, the whole neighborhood goes down. But there, she is trying to teach um, not only the pragmatic approach of fending off vandalism and, you know, the ever-declining neighborhood with plants and urban gardens, but she's also trying to teach the habit into young adults of taking care of their neighborhoods rather than um, destroying mm. it and showing them that they That's can actually brilliant. have a positive um, yeah. enforcement of taking care of your neighborhood. And then... And it, and it matters, right? Mm-hmm. It, they, they experience this sense that they're participating in something that matters. Right. And Which it gives I them hope. Think, hope in Detroit. Yeah, I, think that's, I think that's huge. That's brilliant. Yeah. So as you've done the Zoe Project, I know you guys wrapped up this year. Um, what were some of the, the biggest surprises that you had over these last few years? <laughs> Oh, there were so many. Um, I think, well, this wasn't a surprise, I guess, intellectually, but boy, feeling the force of it was a surprise, was the churn in young adult life. Um, our project was each each church had a team that was, it was intergenerational. Um, each team was made up of a couple of adults who were sta- kind of stable in the community and, you know, three or four young adults. And the young adults in particular, but sometimes even the adults and the pastors just changed, particularly if the, the pastors were young, and many of our pastors were young. Um, every, every year, we had a different team, and so the turnover was constant. And I go to a church that's mostly young adults, and I know this because every September, we have to reinvent the church. Every May, with graduation and with people shifting jobs and stuff during the summer, we literally lose a half to a third of our church. Mm-hmm. And every September, we have to rebuild that. Um, and that was replicated a lot on these teams, which really made consistency. And there's a lot of um, progress you make just by having the same people experiences, share experiences together. And that was much harder to maintain than we thought. Um, we were surprised at um, each of our churches got sizable grants from the Lilly Endowment, and we were surprised at how naive and how um, unpracticed churches were at handling money uh, and mm-hmm. in some ways fearful of it. Um, that was a surprise. Um, a, a, another surprise, I think, was that what feels innovative in one church doesn't necessarily feel innovative in another. And so that there's a range of these kinds of ministries, and some of them look very um, typical, I guess, if, unless you're a church that's never done them before. And then their experience is really revolutionary. <laughs> um, but I had to um, teach myself to allow for some space for churches to define their own understandings of what would count as um, innovative ministry. One of one of the churches that I'm most proud of um, never succeeded at a project. Wow! And at the very last gathering that we had, they finally they said to me, "We finally figured out 
that our Zoe project isn't a project. It's it's learning to try stuff. Yeah. And we've just learned to try stuff. So we'll try this, and if it doesn't work, we'll try something else. And if that doesn't work, we'll try something else. And that, in fact, was the pattern they went through um, during their three years together. And they tried a bunch of stuff. Um, none of it stuck enough for them to want to do it for the rest of their lives. But as a congregation, they have learned not to be afraid to try things. Yeah. And that's because of the young adults in that project. It was, it was quite humbling. Yeah. You know, that's something that, you know, we've mentioned before on the program is just the fear of failing and what that is like. You know, individual human beings are afraid of failing. I am afraid right. of failing. Um, of course, me too. And yet the ability to be able to to put yourself out there, to take some gambles, to take some risks, and to pick yourself up again um, after you failed. One of my favorite Chinese proverbs, I think it's a Chinese proverb. I mean, Google will tell you it comes from everywhere, so I don't exactly know for <laughs> sure. But I do know that the proverb is, fall seven times, stand up eight. And Interesting. I have yeah. not heard that. Nice. And I, I kept that on my computer all through my Ph.D. program, hmm. fall seven times, stand wow. up eight, because, you know, <laughs> just the discipline of learning to fail and fail forward and fail well, well is, is so difficult to master. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that would be that would be a proverb worth posting on every church's computer. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dr. Dean, thank you so much for being with us today. It's delightful. It's great to talk to you. And um, blessings on all of the work that you're doing going forward. Thank you. Likewise. This is Christian Curious with Dr. Haley. Visit us online at www.christiancurious.org. Stay curious. Thank you for listening to Christian Curious with Dr. Haley. You can contact her with your comments or questions about today's show at her email. Dr. Haley at ChristianCurious.org. That's D-R-H-A-L-E-E at ChristianCurious.org. You may also learn more by visiting the Christian Curious website, ChristianCurious.org. Join Dr. Haley again next week for Christian Curious on AM 670 KLTT.